0: Well, it's my honor to be with you this morning to share God's word with you as Hexen is making his way back home. He's a loyal friend of mine. I've known him, goodness, 30 years, I suppose, since he was a wee bitty bitty baby, you might say, almost, but, uh, but I, I, I'm, it's my pleasure to stand in his place and pinch hit by preaching the gospel to to you this morning as you're beginning uh, first in a series of the Advent season and uh, I'm commissioned to preach upon the goodness of God and creation. So would you turn with me to our scripture text this morning, Genesis chapter 1, and we'll read verses 26 through 31. And whenever I begin the exposition, please do one thing for me. Forget everything you know about modern science and modern things, okay? Because we're going back into 1400 1400 B.C. We must think like Moses thought and understand the words like the Jewish Hebrews who first received this uh, text uh, thought in order to properly understand what God is getting at and what He's saying here so that we can apply these truths to ourselves. Remember the Bible was written for us. But it wasn't written to us. It was written to other people. And we must take that into consideration when, in our interpretation. So please do that as uh, when, I, when I get into the exposition. Because uh, maybe it seems a little bit different to you. I'll try to keep it down. Not too far in the stratosphere. Okay. Let's look at this. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 through the end of the chapter. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth and God said behold i have given you every every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit you shall have them for food and to the every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has breath of life I have given evergreen plant for food and it was so and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning there was the sixth day That's the first time the article is used, the the, actually in the Hebrew text, when it comes to days. All before, one, two, three, four, five, the article is absent, a day. But now it is the sixth day point climax of creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for this church and its love of you and its celebration of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we look into your ancient texts and to understand the purposes for which you have made us to begin with and what Jesus Christ has done in redeeming us. We ask all these things for your honor and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. All right. It was the great fourth-century theologian Augustine of Hippo, which said in his autobiographical book, *The Confessions*, "God has made humans for Himself, and we are restless until we rest in Him." At the present time, the American culture is surely restless. There's confusion which abounds regarding questions about what it means to be human. This is one of the most contentious issues in our society today. Abortion, homosexuality, gender identity. All of these questions revolve around this issue of what it means to be human. As a matter of fact, that question, man, Adam, where are you? The first question that God asks in the book of Genesis chapter 3, when man has sinned and is running away and hiding. So where is man? Or what is man? Uh, this confusion in our society has was recently expressed uh, this last year when, when our newest member of the Supreme Court, Kataji Brown Jackson, in her confirmation hearing said she could not define what a woman is. This, all this in spite of the fact that she holds a doctorate degree from Harvard University in, uh, Law School uh, and she was married some 20 odd years and she is a mother of two daughters. And yet she could not define what a woman is. What in the world is going on here? <laughs> the government, I'll tell you what's going on, the government and our institutions of higher learning and all the media which professes vehemently to believe in science, when it runs up against culture and some of those within culture who have a certain opinion about things, all of a sudden we have a brain freeze when it comes to science. Um, even though science teaches us that the female has two X chromosomes, sex chromosomes, or, or X, and the male has one X chromosome, and one Y chromosome. We don't know this, okay? That's all irrelevant when you come up to a preferred group that says, I can be whatever I want to be. But my feelings, because I feel this way. And so the truth of science somehow, all of a sudden, gives way to the feelings of psychology. This becomes the standard of truth. Well, really, what that means is that truth is relative. There is no truth. It's just whatever you want it to be. That's what we're saying. At least that's what the institutions out there are saying. However, the Word of God says something totally different. Jesus, in John chapter 17, verse 17, prays for His disciples. And He tells them, asks the Father to sanctify them, Father, by, the, by truth, in truth. Sanctify them in truth. Thy Word Is truth. As his disciples we take our understanding of the world, our life, and how we're to behave according to what the truth of the word of God says. And when we turn this morning to this question of creation in Genesis chapter 1 as I said please forget everything that's out there that says about this and put yourself back into the second millennium B.C. Think about it this way. What we have in Genesis 1 is the first account of the creation order. It's looked upon from a cosmic, from a global perspective. In Genesis 2, we have the second account of creation. And there it is looked from a totally a human perspective and in the, and in the relationships of human beings. Now, this is very common in, in Hebrew literature. It's common for a a writer in the Old Testament to present a topic, to explore the topic, stop, and then come back and explore it all over again from a different perspective. And this is what we have. We have this, it's very, very, very common, particularly in Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is not worried about rhyming as our poetry is. Hebrew poetry is all about parallelism. God is a shield. What does that mean? God is my high power, my way of protection. These two words are parallel to each other. And these two stories, coming from the mind of, of uh, Moses, are complementary. They're looking at creation from two different perspectives. Now, so what I'm going to say about creation of man this morning is incomplete. Okay? You have to pick up chapter 2 and under, to, to get the full message but what it means to be created in the image of God. We don't have time to go there this morning. I'll leave, let Hexon do that. Or he can give you my dissertation. while well, i work on that for you. Uh, uh, it's quite detailed, but it's quite amazing, really, uh, as to what it means. Chapter 2 pictures the Garden of Eden as a temple. And I could prove it, but we don't have time to go there. And that says something about... What man is designed to do? There we see he's a priest. In chapter one, we're going to see he's a king. But uh, but anyway, keep put your mind in the Old Testament to understand what we're talking. Follow the Hebrew concepts there. Now this morning we have only one perspective of God's goodness to look at in the creation of man. Chapter two. It's it's a it's a macro vision. In chapter two, you have creation on a more micro level, personal level with humans. Now both are true. But we don't have time, I don't, I'm limited on my time as to how to explain all the details. Thus far, what I want you to see in chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, that something strange occurs here. It's unusual, because if you look at the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth, day, on, on, and it's just called a day. It's, it's the first, and it says day, it is a second Day. It didn't say thee. Here it says thee. And we come and it's very different. Everywhere else there's been God issuing commands. We saw a divine fiat. God said, Let there be. And boom, there's, there's light, boom, the, the atmosphere, boom, the ocean, the dry land appears, and so forth. Now, when you come to the sixth, what he calls the sixth day at the very end here, uh, God says, Something different. At the first part of the day, he says, "Let the earth bring forth." He commands the earth to bring forth animals, and there are the animals, the terrestrial animals, the uh, the cattle, the livestock, the creeping things like lizards and snakes, and all the wild beasts of the field. And the latter part of that day, God said, "Let us make man in our image." All of a sudden, it's something totally different. It's, Let us do this. Let us. Now, what in the world do we mean by this phrase? "Let us." In the Hebrew text, it is the grammar of the Hebrew text is what uh, it's not an imperative, like the others command, "Do this, do this." Uh, it's what we call a, a cohortive, and that's a little bit different. Uh, it can mean uh, a request: "I request this." We request this. Uh, it can mean an exhortation: "Let us do this." It can mean resolve: "We will." I will do this. So, what is the exact sense of this, of this, uh, the, the nuance of the mood of this verb here? And, by the way, the verb is in the plural, third-person plural, us, plural. Okay, uh, I mean first-person plural. It's not I, first-person plural, but uh, uh, first-person, not first-person singular, but first-person plural. It's not we... It's we, not I. Okay, so I'm getting kind of tangled up here. Follow along with me, and I'll try not to lose us on this. Now, what in the world does this mean? Numerous opinions have suggested that the plural verb is a reference to the Trinity. It's very common for Christians to say, "Well, what about here? Let us, God is this, is. this is a conversation going on within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Um, what would we say about it? now? That is really good. New Testament interpretation uh, because the New Testament clearly reveals that the one eternal self-existent God subsists in three personal self distinctions the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit that is absolutely true but the question is did Moses understand the existence of God that way did the Jews in 1400 BC receiving this text did they understand it in that way it's unlikely it seems as though that is reading back into read the New Testament back into the Old Testament when it's not necessary to do that. So there, has, there should be another viewpoint. Uh, since the word God in Hebrew, Elohim, is a plural noun, that's in the plural. The word God in Hebrew, El, Elohim is a very common term that's used, but it's a plural noun. In the beginning, Elohim, 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 all the way through chapter one. Then all of a sudden in chapter two, Tiffords, Yahweh, or Lord Elohim, Lord Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is, is God's name for the covenant. So, the whole concept of covenant comes forth in chapter 2, which gives understanding what, what happens in chapter 3 in the, in the fall of man. But we can't go there, we don't have time. The, the main point that I'm trying to get across is that the name God in the Old Testament, it's a plural noun, but it's talking about one singular individual being, not multiple. And so some have said, well, this since God's name, since the word God itself is a plural noun, then it must be a plural of majesty, uh, plurality. Now, the problem with that is that the verb then will always be in the singular because of how it inflects. Uh, but it doesn't. It should be in the in the the verb should be in the plural because the noun is the plural. Um, but here, everywhere else Elohim is used, the verb is always in the third person singular. But here it's in the third person plural. So it's unlikely that the grammar is referring to the sense of the, of the majestic nature of God. Uh, another opinion is that uh, what we call, uh, it's a, a deliberative Concept. In other words, God is speaking to Himself. It would be comparable to a person saying to Himself, well, Let me see, should I walk to church this morning or should I drive a car? So God is speaking to within Himself to this. That is, that's a real possibility. That's a viable way of understanding it. However, I doubt, I think there's a better way of understanding it. The viewpoint that I hold to is, a, is an older, much older viewpoint. as a viewpoint held by the Jewish commentator and philosopher of the first century, Philo. The plural here, he says, and this will shock us, God is announcing to the angelic council what he's going to do. He's announcing to angels what he's going to do. He says, let us make man in our image. Okay. Now, It's obvious that the Bible is full of God having an angelic council and He's addressing this angelic council. For example, Psalm 82 verse 1, God has taken up His place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, the Elohims. There's God, little divinities out here. Elohims and they're clearly angels. angels. He holds judgment. And we see glimpses of God having a council of angels of which He appears and which He makes announcements and tell them what He's going to do. An assembly of angels, we see this in Job chapter 1, 6 verse 12. We see it in chapter 2, 1 verse 6. A very interesting. We see some interesting people that appear at that council. One by the name of Satan. And God points us says, Where have you come from? Well, I've been down on the earth. You have. Okay. Have you noticed my servant Job? Take notice of him. How would you like God to point you out to the devil? Say, try your, try your wily deceptions on him. He won't fall for it. That's essentially what God is saying to the devil. Just let me at him. You know? uh, that's kind of humbling. Uh, I don't want to be exposed. Uh, let me not uh, deliver us from the evil one, John. Jesus prays. I, that's what I want. Deliver me. I don't want to be confronted with him at all. Okay. The third, it's also used in Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 8. Here's the angelic beings. Here's the seraphim flying, six-winged beings. Two, two they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet because they're creatures. So they're expressing a humility in the presence of the assembly of God. And they fly and they declare the holiness of holy, holy, holy. It's Yahweh Elohim, the creator, the majestic, the almighty, the El Shaddai, the almighty. Um, And then he asks asked, who will go for us the prophet sees himself out there uh me and me <laughs> go first kings 22 19 we see all this So here we have what we have i think is a count is a council now what and as i said some in the old testament the evil one was able to come to these things uh, and and it's very interesting when Eve is tempted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in chapter 3. She say, the, the serpent says to her, If you eat of this, you'll be like Elohim. Remember it's a plural now. Elsewhere, Elohim, if it's not clearly understood to be the God, the self-existent one, the creator, it's understood to be the spirit beings, the angels. So maybe he's saying, You'll be like those of the divine counsel. You'll be like the Elohims, the plural, okay, the gods. There's another way of looking at it. It is very interesting. The Greek Septuagint, which is the first translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is made about year 120 B.C., translates Elohim in Genesis chapter 3, 5, angels. Like the messenger uses it in the plural. Uh, Instead of Theos, the singular god, Theoi oi is what it uses, the word. So it's thinking of Satan's tempting you'll be like the angelic hosts that are there. Okay, now this brings all sorts of questions to bear uh, and, uh, and uh, all sorts of... By the way, that is speculation. We're not really sure because the Hebrew text says Elohim. It could be God singular, himself, the true one, true existing God, or it could be used in a plural sense of the, the angelic beings. Okay, we're not really sure. So i just throw that as an option of interpretation of Genesis 3, 5. Now, the objection to this view, normally, when you first hear of it, it was probably going through your head, God is addressing the angel, that He's addressing angelic counsel. Is He requesting them to participate in the creation of man? Is or is it saying that somehow or another we're created in the image of angels? Well, it's, no, it's not a request that the angels Uh, participate or that we're made in the image of angels or anything like that. That's a wrong way to understand the cohortive. I think the cohortive is more like a a declaration. It would be like a CEO of a company who has the controlling interest. He owes the controlling stock of the country. Oh, the 51% so he really owes it. He he tells what's going to happen. And he comes before the board of directors and he stands before the board of directors. Let's, let us make our employees, shareholders, we'll give them a part ownership of the company. That's sort of what it's like that's going on here. He's not saying that human beings are made in the image of angels, or okay? they are that the angels participate in the creation of man. Notice, notice that the, actual, the actual acting of creation, Genesis three twenty-seven. So God, singular, Elohim. What did he do? Barah. he create, created man. First person singular. He creates a singular, not a, not a third person plural, as verse 26 let us make is. First person singular in the grammar. So, angels didn't participate in, in the creative creation of man, and we're not made in the image of angels. Although there may be some likeness to angels, and angels are spirit beings. We too are psychosomatic. We're body-spirit agents. Angels serve the Lord. We are created to serve God. So, there must be some similarities here. But we're not created in the image of angels. We're created in the image of God. And then God himself is the, is the full actor who does the creating, not the angelic beings. Angels are servants. They bow before God, Psalm 40, Psalm 29, 2. They obey him, Psalm 103, 2021. 20, they praise his name, Psalm 148, 25. They serve his will, 1 Kings 22, 19. And possibly... What God is saying when he speaks to the angelic host its what occurs in Job 38.7. And the creation, what do the angels do? They participate in what sense? Praising God, lifting up, glorifying the God of creation of heaven and earth. So in that sense, we might say they participated. They gave God praise at our creation. Okay. So first of all, we have what I call as an outline God's plan to create man. Okay? Now we see the pattern by which he will create man. He says in our image, after our likeness. And by the way, when we come to the word man, Adam in this text, ladies, you must realize this is a collective noun. It means male and female the same. It's not uh, cutting you short in any sense of the word verse 27 so God created Adam in his own image and he tells us what the image is male and female he create he uses the gender terms male and female there he created them and in chapter 5 he uses the same expression in the book this is the book the teledotes this is the history. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is what became of Adam. When Adam, when God created Adam, He made him didn't say. In the image, it says likeness. So they're very similar. The term image and likeness will be very similar. Made him in the likeness of God. what is the likeness of God? The likeness of God is male, the gender of male gender, the female gender. He created them. He blessed them, and he named them Adam man. It's, a, it's just a collective term. Okay, so when you read the word "man" in the Bible, at least in the early sections of Genesis, you have to realize what we're talking about is humanity, mankind. Okay, Uh, uh, the female is very is every much the the image and likeness of God as any man, and we the ladies know that to begin with. Of course, they are. Yeah, there's no difference whatsoever. Totally equal with respect. To relationship to God as any man. She doesn't come, she's not a second class person at all and that's important for us to remember. But this is a collective now so ladies please do not take uh, you know uh, uh, offense at this. Now in chapter 2 it actually we see it as his name. The first male's name. They call him Adam, Adam where are you? That sort of stuff. And then they call him Adam and later the woman is called, is named him. Eve by her husband, Eve. Now, the question is, what do these words mean? What does image mean? The Hebrew term is salim. The Greek translation is icon. We all kind of know what an icon is, if you have any operation with a computer. And I'm all thumbs, not very good at moving electrons. But we all understand what a, what, a, what an icon is. This is a little symbol but behind that symbol stands all these great truths. Okay, okay. Well that's that's what is what we're driving at here, the Salim, the image. Now this this word in Hebrew this Hebrew word simply means image, and how is it used? Well in Second Kings eleven eighteen, it's used of a statue. As a matter of fact, that's, that's, a, that's the prominent way in which it is used. In the book of Daniel, for example, chapter 3 and verse 1, we see King Nebuchadnezzar. What does he do? This is interesting. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image. What is that image? Of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and width, breadth 6 cubits and all this. And he set it up on a pedestal in the plains uh, there of, of uh, Babylon, in the plains of Jura. Okay, it's, so it's a statue, It's the same word image here that's used of the creation of man. Uh, It's used elsewhere as the idols of the pagan idols. For example, Amos 5, 6. It's used of molten representatives of things uh, such as their idols. Remember the the tumors that God plagued the Philistines with whenever they captured the Ark of the Covenant. They sent both the tumors as an atonement the Philistines did, pictures of their golden tumors uh, to, to Israel to swage the wrath of God. It's used in that sense. Uh, it's used of drawings, etchings of drawings, paintings of people, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 23, 14. Now, the image is a statue primarily. Primarily, that's how the word is used. And it's set up so people can see it. Now, in the ancient world, kings would set up images. They would set up images on, of themselves on the border. We have an example uh, of, a, of this great stone chiseling image of, of Pharaoh, uh, Ramesses II, outside of Beirut. Uh, and that rock outcropping, sort of like the, the images of the presidents on Mount Rushmore. When you go to Mount Rushmore, you say, ha-ha. These are the people that were in authority over this land, over this era. Well, that's what they was doing in the ancient world with this image. The image represents It, it is representing what? The authority, the rule, the power of the king of that realm. He's saying, this is my realm. I am in authority here. You must obey me and do not rebel against me. That's what it is saying, okay. And in many ways, that's what's going on here. Now, what does that tell us? Means the word image is representation. So we're created to represent God. And what are we representing? We're representing the kingship of God who owns this world. Whose world is it? Is it yours? No. Is it mine? No. Does it belong to the United States government? No. Does it belong to the communist CCP, communist Chinese government? No. This world belongs to God. It's His planet. It's His world. We represent before the world His authority as its owner. We must behave according to His law, His word. So there's a sense of representation that's in all of this. So we so human beings represent God before the world. Not only are we doing representation; it implies kingship. Man in his ritual, he, he will function, he will reign, he will rule. So he's going to function as a king. But but remember in the Old Testament who the kings were, both in the pagan's world and in and in the Jewish world. Who was a king? Pharaoh was not a king, a ruler, authority, yes, but he was a son of something, son of the gods, one of the, one of the, one of the Egyptian gods. Who is, is, who is Israel's king? David. And what is said of David when God makes covenant of David in chapter 7 uh, of, of Second Samuel? I will be to you a father, you will be to me what? A son. This is the king's king. And in Psalm chapter 2, I have, a, I have enthroned my king on Mount Zion. Who's this king? The Davidic king. He says, his son, today thou art, I've declared thou art my son. Today I've begotten you. Now, that does not mean, that, not talking about generations, talking about enthronement of the king. And Israel, remember, was a son. God is, tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my son go that my son may come and may serve me. So Adam is a king, but he's also representing God. He's also a son. Luke tells us in chapter 4, these are the generation, blah, 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 blah. Jesus and
1: traces it all
0: back. The last guy is Adam, who is what? The son of God. Matthew traces it to kingship. So we got all these, these, these. The, our mind begins to explode as to what this means. We represent God. We represent God as His authority. We are His stewards for the earth to represent His reign, His rule, His rights. But we also saying, in that relationship, we're children of God. We're the sons of God. Human beings are okay. There's more to that. Now there's the the secondary word, and that is the word demuth, means likeness, uh, means to a, a resemble. One of the one of the psalms it talks about resemble like a person has a dream. Now a dream is very real. You wake up, well that was a, that was a, a dream, but it was an actual. But that in that dream that, that person that individual seemed very real. Okay, and so, so with this likeness, we had the concept of resemblance, with with. With uh, image, we have the concept of rule. We have the concept of kingship. We have the concept of association. In this term, we have the concept of resemble. Some way or another, we resemble God. How do we resemble God? We resemble God, well, we understand right from wrong. We have moral, uh, the, the, we have a conscience. The moral law of God, the moral standards of God are, are written upon the heart to begin with. So we understand that. Um, and we have the rights to serve God. Now, so with that, we get kind of the meanings of, of, of this. Plus, uh, there is relationship, male and female. We relate. God is a relational being, personal, relational being. We can relate to God. So we relate to one another and to God. But those are the major concepts of image And how does image is to function? He tells us the purpose of the image. He says, let them have dominion over the fish, let them rule over the dominion of the birds, the beasts, the field, and every creeping thing that creeps. So we have the declaration of this plan, the pattern likened to God, the image of God, likeness of God, resemblance of God, the resemblance of the moral characteristics of God, to what in to rule to be stewards for God over this earth. Okay. And then we see the execution. But it did. God so God. He he announced it. Now we see the plan goes into execute. He executed. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created him male and female. So created humanity to represent him, humanity to resemble his character before the world. And it's both of us, male and female. That's taking a cosmic picture. And then we had the provision, 29. He gives them, he tells them, he blesses them, tells them to be fruitful and multiply. That's one way in which we respect, reflect the likeness of God. We're able to participate with God in procreation, creating life. Angels don't do that. They don't procreate. But human beings do. So in that sense, we're like them. um, Subdue. Subdue the earth; that is, harness the earth. It doesn't mean abuse the earth; it means harness it for human needs. The human needs may be used; we may use our needs of the earth to help promote the glory of God in this world. Um, and so, we have all the provisions; we have the food that's given, and so forth. Now, quickly in the New Testament, what does this mean? In the New Testament, we learn Colossians chapter one. Three, who is the true image of God? Colossians 1.15 tells us, and we'll turn there quickly, quickly running out of time. Colossians 1.15 says, He, that is Christ, so referring to Christ contextually, is the invisible, is the image of Icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all. He is the icon of God, the true representation of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and, and verse 4. If our we preach the gospel, if the gospel is hid to those who, who are lost, whom the God of this world has blinded minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, The light of the glory of Christ who is the icon, the image of God. So the reality is we are created in the image of the true image of God, which is the Son of God. Now, by application, what does all this mean? I know I'm out of time. I have to be out of time. (laughs) What does all of this mean to us today? Here's what it means. It means God wanted you. God didn't have to create anything. He's complete within himself. He's a triune being. He didn't need a thing. He created this universe to express his goodness, to share the greatness and the goodness of his being with creatures. So we're here for his sake, because of it. We have a purpose. All things are from him all things are he sustains all things or so through him all things are for god it says in the book of romans chapter 11 and verse i think it's 33 that says that from him the source through him the means of all things sustaining and existing to him for him for what is glory what's the chief end demand? man why are you here why are you alive why are you created a human being? Why are you not created a bug, a rock, or something else? Why? That you might know God and enjoy him forever, though Westminster Shorter Catechism said. That's our point. We're here that we might know God, worship God, glorify God, and enjoy the pleasures of the Creator. That's why we are alive to do so you're valuable. All human beings have great dignity. We must treat them, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, to always treat everybody, regardless of who that person is, black, white, yellow, doesn't matter. Uh, A foreigner, a legal alien, okay, they're human beings created in the image of God. They have dignity, dignity. You say, well, but they're a broken image. Well, that's true. They are a broken image. Because in the fall, the text do not have to do with this. The image is broken. It's like taking, taking a mirror. the you reflect God's and you, you break it. With well, that mirror, all of a sudden, you give a look at it. it, it you're kind of off centered. You know, you've got a head over here, arm over there. and it, It's not really you. It is you in one sense, but it's really, it's, it's, it's a broken vision of you. And the grace of God and redemption begins to put all these pieces back together. And the glue of all that is the Holy Spirit. And at the end, it needs to be polished so you you can grow in the the knowledge and the character of God. You're being conformed to His image. Romans chapter 8, 29 says, He's predestined us unto conformity to the image, the true image of Christ. and So we can grow in the image. And we grow bit by bit as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what it's telling us is that we, we can know Him. We're important. We're valuable. We likewise should treat people valuable. We should let the world know that this is God's world, and we're here to serve serve Him, bring honor and glory to Him. It also says that the image can be developed, because the image was broken in the fall. We are fractured people, but we're being put together according to the true image, according to Colossians, according to, to uh, 2 Corinthians, according to by the grace of God in the image of Jesus Christ. And this we've been predestined to this. And at the last day when we are totally we're resurrected a new body and everything is made right, we will we will be completely in the image of the son of God. But this is where we are going. And this is how we should understand ourselves, understand our purpose in this world and Act accordingly. In the Old Testament, remember, the great blessing is procreation, fertility, the ability to replicate, reproduce. That's, that's the, great com- that's the uh, creation mandate. When Jesus raises, is raised from the dead, and before he ascends to the Father, he says, Go into all the world. Now the creation mandate is updated. Make Disciples of all nations. Instead of just making human images of Adam, images of the Son of God. So we have a mission to make disciples of all nations. Followers, little icons, representatives of Jesus Christ. We do that through the gospel. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ. May I say you're an image of God, but you're a broken image bearer. Okay, you can't function properly. You don't think right. You won't act right. You have all sorts of problems due to the fact of what we call indwelling sin, rebellion against God, which you have inherited from your forefathers. But God is merciful. He has sent his own true image, the image of Christ himself, the true man, to live for us, to do the things, to live for us the way we have never lived. To obey God as we have never been able to obey and to pay a penalty which we could never pay in his death. And God accepts that. How do we know he accepts? He raised him from the dead. If he didn't accept the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, he wouldn't have raised him from the dead. He raises him from the dead. Romans chapter 4, the very last verse there, chapter 4. For our justification. That we might be made right with God. We might receive the forgiveness of our sins. And the imputation of obedience. which we never made. It's His being given. Transferred to us. And then we can grow. In the image. Grow in the image. We grow by looking. Being. 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 tells us. Being transformed. Bit from glory to glory. As we behold the Son of God. Have you looked to Jesus Christ? Have you looked to Him for salvation? Whomsoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Very simple. Lord, I turn from my sin, I turn from my wicked ways, and I turn to You. Be merciful to me as a sinner. Whomsoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. We thank you that you have made us in your image and that you want us and it expresses it and we represent you, your kingship. We represent your sonship, the true image, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to realize that we're here to resemble him in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in all of our actions, and in all of our relationships with one another. So give us grace, God, that we might be conformed even more and more to the characteristics of Jesus Christ as a result of studying your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. (laughs)